We're through with our study on Romans, and so we're going to figure out what to do, and I've been working on some stuff, and we're going to be in Acts 10, and um, we'll talk a little bit about Peter, and probably, <laughs> as hard as it may seem, in Acts 10 is probably the most significant event in the life of the church outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, anything to do with Jesus, and uh, the conversion of Paul. Uh, there's an event here that happens that radically changed the nature of the church. Anytime you come to Acts, it's always good to go to Acts 1-8. Because Acts 1-8 gives us the blueprint for the book of Acts and for what the church is supposed to do. It's there that Jesus, as he's about to depart, says, The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you, so you're going to have the Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses. It's not an option. You're going to witness. That's a companion over to Matthew 28. And he says, you're going to begin in Jerusalem. Then you're going to go to Judea, Samaria, then to the rest of the world. That's, that's, and if you look at the book of Acts, that's what happens. That's what we're to do. It, you know, oftentimes, you know, we take it and say, this is, a, you know, the, the mandate for how we do missions. It's not really. You know, it helps. It's fine. Uh, you know, I don't, it's not really what that is. What it is, is Christ telling us what to do. And he's telling 11 guys, this is what you're to do after I leave. And the interesting thing is, they did a great job of the first part of that. Holy Spirit came upon them. They were witnesses in Jerusalem. They did fantastic. Christianity was spreading. It was kind of, you know, it was part of the Jewish faith in essence. But they weren't getting it to the Gentiles. And so what happens is, in the seventh chapter of Acts, we see Stephen is put to death. And when Stephen is put to death, there begins a persecution of the church, not by the Romans, by the Jews. And as they persecute the church, all those people gathered in Jerusalem left. They took off and went parts unknown, went back to the home areas. And so that's a significant event. And a guy in chapter 8 emerges who is the chief persecutor of the church in Saul of Tarsus. We know him as Paul. And in chapter 9, Paul is converted to the faith when, he appears, when the, the resurrected of Christ appears to him. And so Paul is uniquely called by the Lord to do his ministry in, in, in among the Gentiles. But Paul, as brilliant as he is, he still needs a little bit of seizing. He doesn't have any credibility yet because he was persecuting the church. You know, the church is still predominantly Jewish. There's stuff going on. And so there's one other guy that's going to be fundamentally important and absolutely necessary to get this thing rolling, and his name is Peter. And in the 10th chapter, Peter is, is relaxing along the Mediterranean Sea in a place called Joppa. He takes a little retreat, a little relaxation. He's doing a lot of hard work. The first part of Acts is about Peter mostly. It's from a human perspective. Peter's doing all this great work. Peter's relaxing. At the same time, in the city of Caesarea, a little bit up the coast, it says, there was a, a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. He was a devout man. One who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. In about the ninth hour, that's about 3 p.m. of the day, he clearly saw a vision of an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa. And send for a man named Simon, who was also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. 
And when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. Now this story of radical importance begins with the Gentile. And the Gentile happens to be a man who is what we would call the God-fearer. In other words, in the Jewish world, Jews were the people of God and Gentiles were the enemy of God. But it was possible, slightly, but possible for a Gentile to become a believer in God. And they were called God-fearers. Now, they could never be fully accepted into the Jewish community. They could never come fully into the temple. There was only a certain place they could go to. Uh, They could participate. You know, they really didn't participate in the sacrifices. The sacrifices really weren't for them. They could give money. They could pray. And and in a very loose way, be associated uh, with the Jewish people. And that was basically a concession they made because too many times throughout their history, they were told... They need to reach out to Gentiles. And they did a horrible job of it. But by the time you get to Jesus, there's, there is this sort of possibility that a Gentile could be acknowledged by God. It was rare, but it could happen. And this was one of those guys. He was a centurion. He was a Roman soldier, which is even kind of more odd because not only did the Jews not like the Gentiles, they hated the Romans who ruled over them, and they really hated the, the soldiers because it was the soldiers who oftentimes inflicted the harm and punishment and damage upon them and who oftentimes would put them to death. An interesting thing you may not realize when you read the New Testament, centurions who were in charge of 100 men are almost always, almost always written about in the highest of praise. I mean, they really are. They're, they're almost always positive figures. In fact, I can't think of when they're not or when they don't end up that way, so I'll, but I'll leave the door open in case someone might, once again, someone might want to tell me I'm wrong. But they're positive. And so here, this guy, he was devout. Even the Jews spoke highly of him. This is an amazing thing. I mean, the Jewish people in that area, in that area, this is, we're not in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, it would have been very difficult for this to occur. It would have been really almost impossible for any Gentile in the area of Jerusalem to get any type of connection to God with, from the Jewish perspective. But out there on the coast, he was spoken highly. And he prayed, and he gave alms, and he did all the things that you were supposed to do to get God's attention. He prayed, and he gave money. That's, he'd be a good Baptist. You know, if, and if that could save you, there'd be a lot more Baptists saved than, than are right now. A lot more people say, period. He was good in all of that, and he had a dream, and an angel appeared to him, basically, in a vision. And it's like most places, when the angels appear, how do you know it's an authentic angel? Because they're always startled. <laughs> they're always like, uh-oh. And so he told him what to do. Go get this guy named Peter. Evidently, he's not really aware of who Peter is, or just how significant a person Peter is, in terms of the world at that time. Anyways, the next day, they were on their way, verse 9. And they were coming to the city, and Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour, noon, to pray. <laughs> and he was hungry, and he wanted to eat. But they were making preparations and fell into a train. I cannot imagine living in a time when you were hungry, you simply couldn't go to the refrigerator or go to the pantry and pull something out. Can you, I mean, that's the one. They had to prepare something. <laughs> My wife's not here. Good. If I had to wait to, to eat when my wife prepared something, I'd weigh 135 pounds. I weigh 100 pounds more than that because I don't wait. 
Don't have to. He was hungry. He went to pray. Have you ever tried to pray when you're hungry? Have you ever tried to do anything when you're hungry? I, I was, right before we get ready to come in here, I'm like, man, I'm hungry. I was looking for something quick. I found a little Hershey's kiss. It didn't do the job. So I'm doing this while hungry. I kind of empathize with Peter. He fell into a trance. And the sky opened up. And an object like a sheet came down, lowered by four corners. And here's the part of, of Acts 10 that most Christians know. Because we're going to radically change the dietary laws. And that's all we care about. In Acts 10, all we care about is at this moment, we get to eat bacon and shrimp. And the fact that we wrap bacon around shrimp just proves how happy we are of all that. Man, now I'm really hungry. Did you text my wife, Joe, and tell her I would like some bacon-wrapped shrimp when I get home? Don't mention me. Just tell her you think that'd be a good idea and you take the blame for it. So there were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures on the earth and the birds. And a voice said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter was a devout Jew. Got to, he was a devout, he was, he was a Christian. At that point, Christianity was a sect of Judaism. And the followers of Jesus, those apostles, were still devout Jews. They still kept the law. They didn't keep the law to save them. They kept the law because they were Jewish. And part of the law was the dietary law. And in the dietary law, you, you just didn't eat certain things. And Peter said, by no means, Lord. In the Greek, that's a double negative emphatic. Ain't no way I'm doing that, God. For I've never eaten anything unholy. Look, and unclean. I've never eaten anything unholy. I've never eaten anything unclean. God is holy. And while I have sinned, I have certainly not eaten anything that is unholy. And I have never eaten anything unclean. I've never done that. And again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, don't consider unholy. And it happened three times. And the object was taken in the sky immediately. Happened to Peter three times. And then notice what happens in the next verse. He was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision he had seen might be. He didn't understand this because this was so radical. Remember, Jesus at this point has been out of the picture at least a little while. We don't know exactly how long people can guess, but a few years probably. And the church is growing and moving and, and things are happening. And, and, you know, he understood. I mean, he understood what it meant to be, to be a follower of Christ. He understood that Jesus fulfilled all the scripture, all the Old Testament. But because Christianity was still primarily Jewish, there was still that connection to the law. And here's the thing that really matters. When Jesus came, he came and told them in Matthew that I have fulfilled the law. I have completed it. He told them, now, no one is to do away with the law. I mean, no one, no one is to diminish it. But I have brought the law to its conclusion. When you go to the book of Exodus and you get all the laws, who were those laws for? The people of Israel. They were for God's chosen people for a specific period of time. So that they could live separate from the pagans. We forget because we live in a world, and our culture, in the area we're around, is, is surrounded by a Christian ethic. Even though I realize people are rejecting God, our Christian worldview is everywhere. The Jews lived in a thoroughly pagan, godless culture and society. The temptation was around them constantly to pull them into paganism. That's why they couldn't intermarry. That's why they couldn't associate. That's why they had to kill everybody in the promised land. 
so God could keep them separate from the pagans who would destroy them. Remember the first of March when I preached the first message to Backroads about Solomon? What did Solomon do? He married all those foreign wives, and it was Solomon who brought all the paganism in. Now, a part of that separation is how they ate. It was a uniquely Jewish thing. It distinguished them as being God's people. And there's other ramifications with idolatry and what they ate and all that connected to it, but it separated them out. And so as as a follower of Christ, who was Jewish, and most of the followers of Christ now are still Jewish, it's a predominantly a, a Jewish cult. Yeah, it is a cult to them, a sect. They still held on to a lot of that stuff, including the dietary laws. Now, they didn't believe the law saved them. But it wasn't until Peter came up, I mean, until Paul came along and began writing about the law, especially in the book of Romans, that we begin to see that the law doesn't apply to followers of Christ. We live under a new covenant, the covenant of faith in Christ. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be good and do certain things. I mean, get all that. But that doesn't apply to us. So he's saying, Peter, that unholy, unclean things don't apply to you. Now, this is, here's the importance. The reason the dietary laws existed was to keep them separate from the Gentiles. You cannot miss that. It's not about health. It's not about undercooked food is unhealthy. I mean, I, I read that and I'm like, okay, yeah, that, okay, sure, all right. But that's not what it's about. It's about separation from godless pagans. But what are they supposed to do in Acts 1.8? They are supposed to make disciples. And Jesus says, you will go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? The rest of the world. What he's saying in Matthew 28? Go and make disciples of all nations. They hadn't done that. So he was perplexed. Didn't notice. Behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having gotten directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. I had this feeling, you know, they started off, we don't need directions until we get there. And then they get to the house, I was like, tap smell the time. Honey, I don't need directions. I know where I'm going. Then they got there. Fortunately, their wives didn't go with them and nag them about it. And calling out, they were asking Simon, who was also called Peter, was he staying there? Peter was reflecting on the vision. And the Holy Spirit, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. I said, Okay. He says, Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Didn't say he could eat yet. I'm sure Peter was wanting to eat first, but didn't say that. I noticed that part. Peter went down and said, Behold, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said this Cornelius, a centurion, righteous and God fearing, well spoken by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. Now, they can't lay it on any thicker. He's centurion, but he's godly, he's holy, he does all the things you Jews do. So notice what Peter did. He invited them in and gave them lodging, which is a unique thing. But that, it's interesting. A Jew could invite a Gentile in under certain conditions, and he did. But you know what a Jew could never do? A Jew could never, ever, ever, ever go into the house of a Gentile because the house of the Gentile was unclean and unholy. The Jewish home, holy, clean, a Gentile come, they can make it holy again, all this stuff. Couldn't do that. He couldn't go to their house. Here's what happens. 
The next day he got up and he went away with him. And some of the brothers from Joppa, some of the Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, they went with him. The following day, he came to Caesarea. And Cornelius was waiting for them and called together all his relatives and close friends. He called everybody in. And then notice verse 25. When Peter, what's that word? Entered. In that verse, Christianity forever changes. Because not just a Jew, but the leader, the leader of the Christian faith at that time. Don't let people tell you like, Peter wasn't really the leader of the Christian faith. Oh yeah, who was? Well, it was the Holy Spirit. Well, that's sanctimonious and pious. It was Peter, was the earthly leader of the Christian church. He was it. Paul wasn't it. James had just barely become a follower. He wasn't it. Most of the other apostles, they were scattered around. It was Peter. And what did Peter do? Peter walked into the home of a godless pagan Gentile. Even though he claimed to be a follower of God, he was still a dirty, unclean Gentile. He entered. And Cornelius met him and did what pagans oftentimes do. Not understanding, he fell out his feet and worshipped a man. Jews never worshipped other men. Gentiles did. Later on, Paul, Barnabas on their first journey, would be worshipped by some of the pagans. Peter said, stand up, I'm just a man. And he talked to him. And he entered and found many people assembled, all all Gentiles. And he said to them, notice, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. What did he say? It is unlawful. He was breaking the Jewish law. He wasn't breaking just any old law. (laughs) He was breaking a major tenet of the Jewish faith. He was associating with unclean unholy, lost, pagan Gentiles. And for that act alone, he could be completely kicked out of any Jewish synagogue or any Jewish community. Later on in the book of Acts, they want to put Paul to death because he brought a Gentile into the, uh, to the Jewish temple area. I mean, they hated him. He didn't bring him in there. They accused him of it. I'm qualify that. But yet God has shown me that I should not call any man holy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. That's why I came. Now I'm going to skip to that that part because it goes over some stuff. uh, Verse 33 and verse 34. Peter opened his mouth. said, I most certainly understand that God is not one to show partiality. In other words, he should have already known that, shouldn't he? What did Jesus say? The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you with power. Go be witnesses. In all the nation, all the world. He had told them, go make disciples of all nations. The word nation means ethnic groups. It doesn't mean, you know, geopolitical entities, all ethnic groups. Jesus told them. He told them a parable about a Samaritan. I mean, he talked to a Samaritan woman. He constantly showed them, I have come for the Jew and the Gentile. And now he says, I've just now, the leader of the Christian church, figured all this out. 
But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The hardest example of fearing and welcoming is this. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. You know yourselves the thing which took place throughout all Judea. So you should already know something about Jesus. Starting from Galilee, the baptism of John. You know, you've heard of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the power of the Holy Spirit. And how he was doing good. And healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Notice this. We are witnesses of all these things. He did both in the land of the Jews and the Gentiles. And then they put him to death by hanging him on a cross. And God raised him on the third day. And granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people. He did all that. In verse 33, all the prophets bear witness that through him everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Then notice verse 44. Peter preached the gospel. And when Peter was still speaking, these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. It does not say the Holy Spirit fell upon them when they believed. They had not yet believed. Don't miss this. They had not yet believed. And the Holy Spirit came upon them. And it was after the Holy Spirit came upon them that they believed. How do we know that? Because, look what it says. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured on the Gentiles. And they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. They had come to believe when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then Peter answered, I love this. Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit. What did he say? Just as we did. And he ordered them to be baptized. That's how he's the head honcho. (laughs) In the name of Jesus. And he stayed on a few days. Don't you see and understand? (laughs) Peter comes into the home of this Gentile and all these other Gentiles. And he begins preaching. And the Holy Spirit comes. They didn't believe and the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came and then they believed. That's evidence for what happened. And the Jewish believers, he calls them, Luke calls them the circumcised. It says they were amazed. They were shocked. They were dumbfounded. They couldn't believe that the same Holy Spirit they had were now visiting these Gentiles and they hadn't done anything to deserve it. They hadn't been circumcised. They didn't obey any laws. They didn't do anything Jewish. They didn't even believe yet. And the Holy Spirit came. And Peter said, he came upon them, go back to Acts chapter 2, just like he came Upon us. And from that moment forward, Christianity moves from being primarily Jewish to being primarily Gentile. And the reason it moved that way was because Jews could not let go of the law and their hatred and their animosity to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles abandoned their belief in their pagan practices. 
and their pagan gods, and they swarmed to Jesus. And with confusion and a lack of understanding and in some degree of ignorance, they just gave their life to the Lord in ways that have never been experienced before or after. Now, why is all this so important for us? Think about how many people over the years we have told, you're not welcome in our churches. Is there anyone, anyone in your life right now that if they said, I really want to know about Jesus, would you come to me and walk into my home or place of business? Is there anyone to whom you would say, I don't think I would go there. And all throughout Christianity today, there are people who would refuse to take the gospel to certain people in certain groups unless they change their ways in order to come to Christ. And here we have Gentiles who were not even believers when the Holy Spirit saved them. That's what that means. He came on. They believed. But after he came. Think, as I remember growing up, how many people would say, you know, you're not really welcomed. Or who would feel not welcomed in our churches. I remember 17 years of age. I'm at Ridgecrest, North Carolina. I'm from San Antonio, Texas. We didn't have, you know, we were mostly Hispanic, more Hispanics than Anglos, very few African Americans. But I remember hearing the church talking about, this is in 1978, hiring armed guards in order to keep people of color from coming to worship with them. And I remember thinking, my gosh, I don't think the Lord shows up either, does he? Just think about that. Think about how many people that look weird and strange and have sinful lives. I mean, let's let's not beat around the bush. Their lives are sinful. And we've told them, we don't want you to come here unless you straighten up first. And then once you straighten up, you can come. I'm not saying us. I'm just talking about Christians in general. Think of how appalling that must be to God. So think about the culture we interact with all the time. And how many of those people desperately need Jesus. But how often do we hesitate to include them into the kingdom? We may not think about it intentionally. It just may be accidental. It just may be habits. Maybe. We're not crazy about them. Maybe we don't like them. And if Peter had had that attitude, you and I wouldn't be sitting here today as followers of Christ. If Christianity remained Jewish, Christianity would have been irrelevant. Now, I know God would have provided that Paul. I, mean, I get all that. He'd have found another way. I, mean, I understand all that. But he didn't find another way. He dealt this way. And what Peter did. Part of our calling, we're, we're, we're called, and we live in an unbelievably secular culture. We discussed this in staff meeting a lot. We were discussing it yesterday about some stuff. And I am always aware, whether you know this or not, of the changing dynamics of the culture in which we live. 
And I am always cautious, wondering at what point that culture is going to force us to maybe to do certain things. I understand all that. But I constantly have to ask myself, what's the single most important thing I can do as a person of the Lord and as a pastor of the Lord Jesus Christ to help that culture? And the most important thing I can ever do is to embrace them with the gospel of Jesus. I don't have to accept their lifestyles. I don't have to accept their beliefs, things they do, the people they like. I may say that. But at some point in all of that, I've got to follow the example of Peter. And I have to enter into their world in order to share the gospel. Because here's the thing. They probably won't enter into mine. Because the history of my world is you're not welcome, keep out, you're a Gentile, I'm a Jew, stay away. That's the history, the recent history of our world. I'm not talking about about first pastor, I'm talking about in general. So that many people who need God don't feel comfortable coming into our world because they feel like they're going to be judged and condemned and sent away. Which is why Jesus said, Go make disciples. And why he said, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and in the rest of the world, because you've got to go. And we normally think about that in terms of going around the world. And what we really have to think of is in terms of going into the homes and the businesses and into the culture of people that make us uncomfortable. So that they might come to Christ. And there is no way in all of scripture you can ever disagree with that statement. And people do. All the time. I think one of the exciting things about our church. And I'm not saying this because I'm the pastor. I'm saying this because I think it's true is that we have made great strides to try to connect with a culture that's different than us. I'm not saying we're going to accept the way they do things. I'm not just saying we're going to dress the way they dress, though there are a few exceptions. And I'm not saying we're going to pat them on the back and say everything you're doing is okay. It's not. You know I don't believe that. I mean, if you've been around me these four years, you know I am a staunch conservative man in every aspect of my life, except one. I don't want to be conservative in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't want to be conservative in sharing my money either. And I don't want to be conservative in loving people. And I don't want to be conservative in forgiving people. In other words, I don't want to be too conservative when it comes to people who are lost coming to know Jesus. So I think one of the things that we're probably better at than most, I say that with trepidation is I think we have begun to embrace a culture. But we can't stop. We can't get place. And Joe and I were talking yesterday, and uh, he was telling me how much he appreciates me as pastor and how much I've taught him all the things I've done to help him in his life and his family. <laughs> and how much he admired me. I appreciate Joe saying that. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to say amen, brother. 
Your family wants you to say amen. But one of the things that I'm talking about is we can't get complacent. Sunday we had 755 people in worship and another, I don't know how many, we had over 900 people on our campus. The previous Mother's Day last year, we had like 640 in worship. We had 100 more people in worship this Mother's Day than last. And over 900 people on campus. And it's so easy to get complacent and forget there are a lot of thresholds There's a lot of homes we haven't entered of people who need Christ. And we've got to enter those homes. We've got to enter those cultures. We've got to enter those worlds. We're going to do that partly this Saturday. Uh, We're going to work with Bethesda to go out to La Mesa and help them, you know, plant a church, start off that. But there are so many, just so many individuals you come in contact with who probably feel rejected by a church. But you have to cross into their world. As uncomfortable as it makes you. You have to enter their world. Show them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when you enter the world. It just might be possible. That the Holy Spirit. Will go there with you. And change their life. And isn't that at the end of the day. What we want to see. Well I'll leave room for any questions you may have. that I will see you Sunday, hopefully.